Good evening, Tom. Good evening, Simon. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Looking forward to the weekend. It's been such hard gap. This retirement is harder work sometimes, isn't it, than work ever was? It really is. It really is. When you throw grandchildren into the mix. <laughs> yeah, indeed. <laughs> I spend two hours with them and I'm absolutely exhausted. I fall asleep in the chair at night when I get home. That's exactly it. Me too. I suppose it's appropriate talking about our grandchildren there, Tom, because tonight we're going to talk about a big part of both of our lives and careers as police officers. And we want to focus back in the 80s here, when we both had different experiences of this phenomena of major crime investigation, and in this instance, focusing on child abduction and murder. 1982, you were in Borders. What rank were you at the time, Tom? I was a detective inspector in the Serious Crimes Code in 1982. I was just an aide to the CID. I was about to become a detective down in, in rural Cameltown. So child abduction back then, a big, big issue for the police, and it really uh, helped modernise a lot of our investigation techniques back then. What are your recollections of that period? I think looking back, I mean, at the, at the time, it was a time of tremendous trial. I, I remember feeling... Um, incredible professional pressure at that time because in the late 70s we'd had the abduction and murder of the two girls um, from the World's End pub. We were still investigating that in 1982 when in July there was a missing girl, an 11-year-old girl went missing right from the border between Scotland and England near the town of Coldstream. Susan Maxwell was um, a wee girl. She actually lived just over the border in England, but she'd been in Scotland playing tennis. And about five o'clock at night on Friday, uh, the 30th of July, she was walking back across the bridge towards home. It was about a mile, and it was a very warm summer that summer. It was a very warm day, and she had played tennis, and she was walking back down the main road that crosses the River Tweed, which is the border between Scotland and England. And she was she was dressed in her tennis shorts and a wee T-shirt, and she was carrying her tennis racket. Now, um, Susan was a, a lovely wee girl, not given to going missing or, or anything like that. And so when she was reported missing, then immediately the local police took it seriously. It wasn't a case of, of waiting hours to see if she turned up. They knew from the circumstances that something had gone wrong. And, of course, it was really difficult because we're right on the border between Scotland and England. So, as you know, it's not only different police forces, it's completely different jurisdictions. And laws. See, absolutely. And fortunately, we had a very good relationship with Northumbria Police. They helped us, we helped them. So it was pretty seamless when we started to, to search for Susan. And, and initially... We thought that she might have wandered off the road um, or, or, or got herself into the river or, or been pushed into the river or been knocked down by a car and be lying injured somewhere in the undergrowth. And I remember I was on duty in the Serious Crime Squad that day and we got a call to say there was a, a vulnerable missing girl in the borders and we were told to get ourselves down there, myself and my team, first thing in the morning, the next morning. The local police were doing searches of the roadside verges, etc. But we were told to get ourselves down to Coldstream Police Station and establish a major incident room 
and a major incident admin set up the next morning. So very, very quickly, it was recognised that something had gone wrong here. That was an unusual response, Tom, looking back on it. What was it about it that made the balloon go up so quickly? I'm talking from personal experience that to be told the night before, on the first day that she went missing, uh, to get down there the next morning, that was a fantastic uh, decision that was made there. The deciding factor was the fact that she had been seen leaving Coldstream and walking along the road towards the bridge, which demarks the border between Scotland and England. And various cars, it's a busy road, and various local people had seen her walking along the road, and then five minutes later, she had disappeared. There was a clear indication that something had happened to her very, very quickly, and the fear was that she had been knocked down by a car. I remember the next morning thinking, right, okay, we could be talking about a section one of the road traffic act, you know, but first of all, we had to, to find her. And as I've said, it was a very hot summer, and I'll never forget, it's the first time I've ever come across giant hogweed. It's that huge big plant, looks like wild rhubarb, and it was growing in profusion along the side of the River Tweed. And we had search teams out. We had lo a lot of the local policemen from the borders who knew the area. They had come out to help the search. A lot of the public had come out. Uh, Susan's father, uh, who was a well-known local man, he was there. All his friends who were farmers were there. But it was hellish conditions because it was so hot. And this giant hogweed uh, can sting you, burn you. So it really was the most inhospitable circumstances to, to search. And of course, because of the giant hogweed and the undergrowth, you had to be very careful because you could have easily have gone past the body of a child uh, without no noticing them. The first 12 to 24 hours, we were searching and searching, but very soon we came to the conclusion that even if she had been hit by a car, we'd have found the body. Then, of course, what we did was, well, you know, usual thing with missing persons, who were her friends? check their houses, when had they last seen her, was there something about Susan that we didn't know, parents didn't know, she was only 11 years old, we didn't think there was any sort of boyfriend involvement, anything like that. As you do these things and you eliminate these things, you start to think about something sinister. And as usual, we, we did the old bullseye principle, we started from the, the middle and worked out, so, you know, were there any sex offenders in the town of Coldstream? Were there any sex offenders in the little town of Cornhill and Tweed, which is on the English side of the border? Were there any people with convictions for indecent exposure, offences against children, and all of these things? Now, in a very small community, it doesn't take long to sort that out. But then, of course, it started to get the attention of the local press. And when it started to get the attention of the local press, we then started to get phone calls and messages of people reporting spurious sightings of cars and of what they saw with thought was abductions and, and people were phoning in with people's names. Some of them were genuine, some of them were vindictive. And, and so we, we started to, after about, from my memory, after about 36 to 48 hours, to build up an administration, a major incident administration. Did, did that um, major incident room, did that stay in Goldstream at that period anyway? Yes, it stayed in Coldstream. Coldstream's a very small police station just before the bridge going over to the to the English border. It's almost the last building in Coldstream is the police station. 
And what we did was we, we took, we took, we took there's, a, there's a sergeant's room, as there always is in these wee police stations. So we took over that. We took over the main part of the station uh, to turn it into uh, a little admin room. I was down there and I had my team of six detectives from the serious crime squad. And then the local CID augmented it. So from the word go, we maybe had uh, 10 to a dozen uh, detectives working on it. And every policeman and woman for 50 miles was making their way to the scene or taking up their prearranged roadblocks. Yeah, and there'd be a lot of overtime going on, especially in the first 48 hours when you were still hopeful of finding it. Well, a lot of overtime, a lot of travelling. We used to leave Fetis at 7 in the morning and we used to drive, uh, frankly, like bats out of hell um, down that A68 um, to Coldstream. And when I think about it now, the speeds we used to, to drive at, and then, of course, come back late in the day when we were tired, uh, uh, a lot of my time in the serious crime squad, my family reflect on that time as as being lost in because they literally never saw me. Yeah, yeah. We used to say that we went home. We would go home for a clean shirt. Really, that was about it. I can remember getting dropped off at home sometimes and then being picked up again, and it felt as though they had only just left <laughs> because I'd fallen asleep instantly, and then they're back at the door. The day shift are back at the door to get you again. It was just that's right. Nice. That's right. So six a.m. Uh, head into into Fetis, seven o'clock wheels up uh, down to Coldstream, and then you'd be back uh, home by about ten o'clock at night. So and it went on like that for quite a few days. The alternative was we could have stayed down there, but my boss in, in the serious crime squad at, at that time, uh, and I think it was it was very far-sighted. His view was that it was much better to get home to your own bed for six hours than be hanging about the local town. He was a strong believer in that, and and you know what? I think he was right. I think he was right. Yeah, definitely. You need downtime. You need a downtime, even if it's just travelling away from the scene. John, let me ask you because. It, there's very few people could answer this. You and I both worked in serious crime squads in different parts of the country and on numerous major inquiries, but there's still not that many people in the big scheme of things that could answer this. What would an incident room look like in 1982 then, when Susan Maxwell vanished? Because it's historic now, it's prehistoric. What would an incident room look like and how did it function? What was the day-to-day -day functioning of it, a major inquiry incident room? Well, one of, one of the, the first things, I mean, first, first of all, you needed, you needed a decent space and you needed a private space because the last thing you wanted, the last thing you could stand was people wandering through, picking up and lifting things. But it was all based on the old card index system, the manual card index system. The carousel. Yes, which hadn't changed. Well, in, initially, it got to a carousel, but initially, you could, you had, we had these, what were it, what, they looked like shoeboxes. And we had these eight by four, eight inch by four inch cards with lines on them, filing cards. And within my team, I would appoint an admin manager, usually a sergeant, an admin sergeant, and a couple of clerks, a couple of DCs who would work with them. And they were the admin team. And they would start off a primary index with names on them. So Robert Smith, Simon McLean, a resident nearby or who had given some sort of statement. So there would be Simon McLean, there would be his address, there would be a brief description of Simon McLean, and there would be a little one-liner as to what his role was. Witness lives nearby, 
statement number one or statement number two or whatever. And they would be filed alphabetically, and that would be the master index. Okay, but, the, but there were other indexes as well. So you'd have three or four of these shoeboxes, uh, and one would be for vehicles, and, and one would be for, for sightings of descriptions of people. And sometimes you would have Simon McLean was interviewed, he's a neighbour nearby, interviewed um, black jacket, black trousers, and then you would, in sightings of a suspect, you'd have a middle-aged man, uh, white hair, black jackets, black trousers, maybe Simon McLean, and you would cross-reference that. And that's all done manually, Tom. Every part of that is written out and filed and manually researched by the, the senior investigating officer. All done manually. The accuracy and the efficiency of that whole system depends on the man with a pen. So it was very, very vulnerable to human error. How many ways are there of spelling McLean, for instance? M-A-C, M-C, all sort of different ways of, of spelling it. So all of these things were were error factors which could creep in. But for, for a very simple, for a normal routine, right? it sounds funny to talk about a normal murder, but for a, a routine murder, then that card index system and the old shoeboxes, they served well and they were perfectly adequate. The problem came when the situation started to grow and then you were dealing with half a dozen shoeboxes and then you were dealing with one of these carousels, which you referred to, and then there would be two or three carousels. The error factor grew and grew and grew. We had an index system on our side of the border, and Northumbria had an index system on their side of the border. And the way that they operated was quite different from the way that we operated. And the way that they took statements was different from the way that we took statements from the start. It was problematic. I remember, Tom, one of the first major, it may have been the first major inquiry I worked on, and for the life of me, I have no idea what it was, but it was a murder inquiry in Glasgow. And uh, the, invest, the senior investigating officer in charge was Charlie Craig, Detective Chief Superintendent Charlie yeah, Craig. I remember him. I had just come out of, I was DC in Campbelltown in Argyll, and I had worked through Argyll and elsewhere as a, a young detective, and I had. Fair enough, I had about three years, three and a half years service when I got posted to the Serious Crime Squad. That's another story entirely, because I was way out of my depths, really. With the, I was the youngest by about five years, probably, in the Crime Squad. There were mostly much more senior detectives. But I got sent to take a statement, and I went and took this statement and, uh, and came back to the office. Now, you understand this, and I want to convey this to people, is that when a uniform cop takes a statement, it's generally at the locus. It's usually a complaint or, or a witness nearby. And it's a very brief statement that he'll take to get the essence of the thing. And he'll do, usually do it in his notebook. And if it's a page or two, then that's a decent enough statement as long as he's got all the pertinent information. When you go into the CID, when you take a statement, things step up a wee bit and you generally spend more time in the nuances of the statement with the witness. And I thought I was a, a big city detective at this time, of course. And when I went back to the station, I handed my, can't remember where the, I think it was Cranston Hill in Glasgow, and I handed my statement into the incident room, 
And what you got was another action, you and your neighbour, where this time my neighbour was back from court and would be issued with an action, which was a job to go and do, probably to get another statement or whatever from a potential witness. And I get called in by Charlie Craig the next morning into his office. <laughs> and of course, I'm only a wee boy, and this is the chief super calling me in, but he was brilliant. He sat me down and he explained to me about taking statements. And he said, this is a great statement at divisional level. It's got everything you would want at divisional level, but it's about 10 pages light <laughs> for a statement in here for a major inquiry. Now, there's no limit to how long you can spend with a witness. I don't need you to spend 20 minutes or an hour. You spend as long as it takes to get as much detail as you possibly can. And, uh, of course, from then on, the statements were so big because it was a big lesson for me, and it stood me in fantastic stead for the rest of my career, Tom, about statements. And, and what I'm thinking here as we're speaking is that all the information from my statement, every description, every item of clothing, every Reggie number, every time, every TV program, every uttered sentence or, or person that was seen in a pub and description, all of that had to be then entered into the system, the carousel. And that's what you describe as clerks that would take that information from the statements and put it into the index card system. Uh, to, and somebody somewhere is looking for those common denominators. What would happen is once the, the statements were taken, the statements were sent into the incident room, then the clerks would sit and underline all these salient points that we described and put beside a reference number and a card reference number. So they were all lined like that. But I tell you, Simon, I, I learned a lot during that investigation because it was the first time I was a DI in the serious crime squad. I'd been a DS. I'd, I'd been around a bit. But that was the first time I'd really worked hand in glove with another police force from another jurisdiction. I found out the great truth was there were things that Northumbria did that were better than we did them. And one of them was statement taking, because in the English system, a statement is admitted into evidence. In our case, a statement was not. So they signed their statements. And if they took a statement from a witness, then the witness signed the statement, and then they signed the statement after it. And as a consequence of that, their statement taking, frankly, was better than ours. And in that month or so of the early investigation, my statement taking and the statement taking of my team improved tremendously because we began to see the virtue of some of the English systems. When it was all said and done, Susan Maxwell was seen crossing the bridge into England. And so while we were playing a key part, as she had disappeared from us, actually Northumbria were driving the investigation until, of course, a body is found. And then responsibility lies with the force where the body lies, as they say. But at that time, before Susan was found, then it was Northumbria who were driving it. And we were adapting to their systems, which, as I say, in some cases, not in all, but in some cases, were better than ours. I remember thinking about it and thinking, here am I, I'm an inspector, you know, a fairly senior officer, and it's, a, it's another school day. I'm learning something. So let's take that to its conclusion then, Tom, uh, with Susan. When was the body of Susan Maxwell discovered then and where? Ten days later, the remains of a child were found in a lay-by 
beside a fairly busy main road in Staffordshire. Young people, children, and this is not, this is indelicate, obviously, but young people and children, their bodies putrefy very quickly in the summer heat. It was very, very hot that July. And so it was, it was a while until it was identified as being Susan. And then, of course, when she was, it was a completely different ballgame because, first of all, we realised that she had been abducted. And because of the time factor that I talked about, this business of her being seen one minute and gone the next, we knew she had been snatched and then she had been transported 300 miles and murdered and her body deposited in a lay-by in another force area. So, so here we have the, the thing you fear most. The thing you fear most is a, a travelling predator who is forensically aware to some extent, but there were no obvious uh, forensic clues left with the body. And you also now have three police forces involved. You've got Rodin and Borders, where she was seen. You've got Northumbria. And now, of course, you've got Staffordshire. And because the body was found in Staffordshire, they become prime in the investigation. And they start to drive it. And then, of course, you've not only got physical distance between them, they had different techniques to Northumbria. Northumbria had different techniques to us. And so it became very, very difficult. And all the time... The numbers of cards in these damn card carousels multiplied, and with every new hundred new cards and five hundred new cards, we knew that the error factor was growing. And of course, while none of us in that era had been involved with the Yorkshire Ripper case, we knew that that disaster of the Yorkshire Ripper case had all been about the fallibility of the card index system. It simply was not designed and could not cope with large multi-force investigations. It just couldn't. So with that knowledge and that realisation, was that quickly realised? Because the police are not quick, in my experience, to acknowledge, especially where different forces are concerned, there's, there's a, a, a very natural tendency to look after your own side of things. Was it openly discussed? Because the solutions to it were changed the whole face of policing across the UK. Well, well, well yes, it was openly discussed, but there was, there was nothing much we could do about it because all we had was the index card system. But, of course, just about that time, a few years earlier, there had been the disaster of the, the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. This was 13 linked murders of young women, some of them sex workers, some of them not, in the sort of Midlands, West Yorkshire area, with four or five forces involved, including Northumbria. And the card index system had failed utterly, because when eventually the culprit, Peter Sutcliffe, was arrested in a routine traffic stop by a uniformed cop, it was found that he had been through the system, through the card index system, no less than nine times. It's a shame that it usually has to be a disaster that brings about such change. But that disaster brought about the, the famous Byford report. Lawrence Byford was the, the Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Constabulary in England and Wales. He was a nice man, a very experienced policeman, an experienced detective. And he carried out a review 
of the Yorkshire replication, he came out with a whole lot of recommendations, but there were two principal ones. One, he recognised that the card index system, the manual system, was no longer fit for purpose, and that there had to be a computerised system developed, number one. Number two, he recommended that in large multi-force inquiries, there should be appointed an officer in overall command, one person who was responsible for coordinating and pulling together the responses of all the forces. As you've just said, this was treated with great suspicion because if you had a murder on your patch, the last thing you wanted was somebody else dabbling in it. You know, they were guarded jealously. And the other thing is that, frankly, we knew nothing about computers in 1982. And so the Home Office started out to try and design a computer system to administer major incidents. But I mean, they were starting from ground zero. It was a big, big job. And the Home Office is not known for their speedy response, so it was taking time. And there was nothing there tangible by the time we had the second catastrophe, almost exactly a year later in Portobello. I remember in 1984, as a young detective in the crime squad, my DS said to me, uh, McLean, do you want to go in this computer thing, this computer course thing? And I said, I don't know anything about it. In fact, you know what I said to him, Tom? I remember that exactly what I said to him. I said, Bobby, computers don't solve murders. <laughs> oh, yes, they do. <laughs> and that was the only chance I got to go in the homes course. And I didn't go. I didn't. I wasn't interested. None of us were, really. None of us. I think my mate, Tom, went, who was a graduate. He came through the accelerated promotion scheme, and he probably had foresight that I didn't have at that time. But to finish off this section of what, what we're talking about here before we come on to the, the next abduction a year later, tell me about who they appointed then as the, the officer to lead the three forces uh, in this inquiry and pull all the millions of strands of that inquiry together and how we managed to do that. Well, they, they didn't appoint an officer in overall command until the next catastrophe overcame us almost exactly a year later. Uh, on the on the 8th of July 1983. So for the first year from uh, July 1982 to July 1983, the disappearance of Susan Maxwell was investigated in the traditional way of card index systems with incident rooms in Staffordshire, in Northumbria, and in Lothian and Borders, with the SIOs, uh, the three chief inspectors, the SIOs, speaking together on the phone and trying to coordinate. It was far from perfect, far from perfect, but it was all we had, and it was all we could do. Next time on Crime Time, Inc. But the one I remember most was the murder of Susan Maxwell. With throngs of people and seeing this little white coffin uh, being taken to the graveside, an audible anguish in the air, and it was tangible. You could feel it. One of my little girls has been murdered. That, that large group of people grieving for the, for the loss of... Uh, young Susan, um, and as I say, it's something, uh, something you never forget. Almost a year later, uh, and uh, I remember it well, I was actually working on another murder investigation. I'd been taken off Susan Maxwell because we had another murder investigation, which I was, I was working on when we had a catastrophe uh, on the 8th of July, um, 1983, when five-year-old Caroline Hogg 
went missing from her home in Portobello.